Welcome to Rare on Air, the monthly podcast from Eurodis, Rare Diseases Europe. I am your host, Julian Poulan, and once a month, we will be exploring the challenges, experiences, and successes of people who live with a rare condition. How do healthcare systems decide on the best treatments for patients? How do healthcare systems determine whether new treatments are worth paying for? A health technology assessment or a HTA for short, is the process by which a healthcare authority evaluates the available healthcare options while looking at medical, social, economic and ethical factors to determine healthcare practices at a policy level. In today's episode, I speak to Johan de Graaf, president of the Dutch Pituitary Foundation, who talks about his own personal rare disease journey and how his patient organisation in the Netherlands has actively pushed to expand access to treatments which most improve the quality of life of people from his community. I also speak to Francois Huyez, our Information and Access to Therapies Director at Eurodis, who discusses the role of health technology assessments across Europe and how greater patient engagement can improve the outcomes of such assessments. Johan and Francois, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for the invitation. Hello, Julien. Hello, Johan. Hello, everyone. Johan, when and why did you first become involved in rare disease advocacy? And how did you eventually become president of the Dutch Pituitary Foundation? Well, I got my diagnosis in 2007. It was a rather past diagnosis that's uh, not very particular in pituitary conditions. But slowly I got the attest from my work and, and the company doctor, I worked at a large international bank, said, well, maybe it's good for you to get involved in society to do something like patient efficacy. And from that moment on, I tried to look for a, a suitable patient organization and I stumbled on the Dutch pituitary organization. And I reported there myself to, to do some, some things for them. And well, it started in 2011, 2012. The first project I did was on neurosurgery. And uh, then I became involved in the board. And as from 2015, uh, I was asked to be the, the chair, the president of the Dutch Pituitary Foundation. And that's where it all started. And for me, internationally, it started in 2016 when I joined the Eurodis Summer School. And, and that's the start of my international patient equity uh, career. Actually, if you don't mind me asking, when you first had the tumour, I believe in 2007, Mm -hmm. what kind of physiological impact did it have on your life? What were the symptoms of your condition? Or could you maybe explain a bit of the science behind what was happening at that time? Pituitary tumours grow very slow. So maybe from my mid-20s on, I was 37 when I received that diagnosis. They're starting all kinds of things like tiredness, weight gain, but you don't see it as, as an illness. And for me especially, I have one daughter, fortunately, and when I want to have a second child, uh, it wasn't possible because my hormone production was disturbed. And then they looked into it and they found that my testosterone, that's very necessary to get uh, children, wasn't wasn't there anymore. And so I got my diagnosis as in the fertility uh, project. And uh, that happens to a lot of people, but pituitary disorders are very diverse. Uh, we have people producing uh, too much growth hormone, too much cortisol, lack of sex hormones, prolactin. So there are a number of, of pituitary disorders and, and most of them take a very long time before they're diagnosed. So I was I was already having the t- tumor. I didn't feel really uh, sick or whatever. But uh, I was very happy that I was diagnosed in 2007 and that started a sort of journey 
with with medicines, neurosurgery, radiotherapy. So, uh, well, I'm all around experience now as a pituitary patient. No, that's interesting. And of course, you point to the sort of diversity of conditions which fall under this category, because of course, you have so many different hormones and you have the matter of not producing enough, producing too much. So your organisation does cover a huge number of conditions that people can experience. So what has your experience actually personally been like of treatments for your condition over the years? Have there been many advances? Have there been new treatments that have come into existence that directly help you? Are there ones that have struggled to get to you due to not being reimbursed or not being approved? Well, you see, when, when, a, when a pituitary patient needs medicine, the first instance, they need medicine to block the overproduction of hormones. And after they treat it, they mostly need medicines to supplement the hormones that are lost due to surgery or radiotherapy. And there aren't that much new medicines available, but there are some, of course. And what we also see is improvement in medicine. So you have uh, a daily administrative uh, medicine or uh, once a week or once every few months or whatever. And you see hurdles in, in uh, reimbursement in that uh, area. But there are, there are some new medicine and, and we see we have one, yeah, one example of, of a medicine for Cushing's disease that was very difficult to get it reimbursed and it still is, though we had the opportunity to give our opinion. So there are examples and, and the problem is it's a rare disease, of course, and the people assessing our medicines aren't always aware of the specifics and the problems of a pituitary patient uh, on, on hormone replacement therapy. So it's very difficult to bring that message uh, to them. We do our best. I see. And for the sort of broader population of people suffering from various pituitary conditions in the Netherlands, have many patients faced obstacles to receiving new treatments that would improve their overall quality of life? Are there any examples specifically of the state not reimbursing any treatments that are a better investment, essentially, both for the state, the healthcare system and the patient receiving the treatment? We have a very, very nice example of a medicine, testosterone. We have different sorts of testosterone. There is a daily gel. You have to apply that on on your upper arms or or on your belly every day. So as a patient, you are are aware of the fact that you have a condition, that you have an illness and you have to take your medicine. And that that can be a burden for some because it's an alcohol base that can irritate the skin. Uh, You also have to be careful not to transfer to others. And it can be sticky in the summer because the gel gets uh, fluid again. And there is also a form of testosterone, it's an injectable, an injection. And there are two forms of injections. There is one that works for two to three weeks, um, but you see that uh, the level of testosterone fluctuates when you get the injection is very high. And then after three weeks, it comes down to zero. And there is an injection you have to get every 10 to 14 weeks, three months. And that gives stable values of testosterone. But the problem is that our HTA agent said, well, an injection is an injection. So the price of the lowest, the two to three weeks, was the maximum reimbursement price. And the rest for the other injection need to be paid by the patient. And it was around 90 euros. So that's, that's a lot of money on top of everything. So we tried to, to come, we, we have asked our ATA agent, well, is it possible to get to differentiate the one every 10 to 14 weeks uh, injection from the other one? Because it's two different medicines, because there is a stab- stability in, in, the, in testosterone. And also the patient doesn't feel being a patient for three months. So that's very nice. And also getting an injection in the buttocks is also painful. But when it's only one every three months, it doesn't matter. Every two to three weeks, uh, that will be difficult. But, um, well, 
what we did, we joined forces. We were four patient organizations, uh, the Transvision for the transgender community, the Kleinfelter, the Testicular Cancer, and of course, the Pituitary Foundation. Four different patient organizations, but all, all of the patients were in need of testosterone. And we applied for another uh, reimbursement status. And, uh, well, it took a few years and we worked together with clinicians and we worked together with the, the registration holder. And eventually it worked out. Uh, we, we now have a special code for reimbursement of long-acting testosterone. And we were very happy with the fact that working together uh, gave that opportunity for patients to have a choice in what therapy fits best for them. So we're very happy that it worked out, but we, we had to wait a long time before it, uh, we managed it. Now, that's a really great example of how different patient communities can come together to affect change or improve access to a treatment. Of course, you refer to HTA agents, that refers to health technology assessment agent. In terms of health technology assessments, Johan, what do you feel has typically been a shortcoming of how a treatment is assessed? Or what would you say are the factors that are underappreciated or underconsidered by health technology assessment systems? I remember talking to you before this podcast about how there's kind of a bias towards pre-existing medications based purely on direct physical health outcomes, but there isn't enough appreciation for the wider impact of a medicine or how it must be taken on someone's life. I think it's a wider problem. I think that quality of life isn't taken into account always. Uh, For a patient uh, taking one injection every uh, three months or every two weeks or a daily gel, uh, that matters. And the problem is, we have seen it with other products. For instance, there is now a long-acting growth hormone variant. Normally, uh, parents need to inject a child every day, but there is also a solution to do it once every week. We see that that parents, of course, feel sorry with their children and say, well, we allow you uh, on Saturday to have a day off of your treatment. But growth hormone, especially in children, starts at a very young age and uh, continues until they're almost, uh, well, adult, young adult. And missing about 10 years, one day a week, is centimeters at the end. So tariff compliance is very important. And that should really be taken into account, and not only uh, just at the HCA, but also in the process of, uh, of the EMA, of the regulatory part. And we see that it's very difficult to take into account the, the quality of life. It, it, it's subjective, it's difficult, so they tend to look at the well-measurable outcomes as, as blood values, composition of fat in the body, etc. I think it, it is really important that quality of life should be in it as soon as a product is uh, being assessed by an, an EMA. And when it's in the EMA report, it comes on automatically to the HTA. And, and now we see for testosterone, for instance, we have to repair it afterwards. And that's a very long process. And I also think, of course, it's important that patients have a say in that sort of processes. And that's also, we we only came there at the end and not from the beginning. I think I also remember you mentioning previously that sometimes even if there is data which indicates that a treatment and the way it's taken could improve one's quality of life, lots of the time the data is dismissed due to concerns about a pharmaceutical developer's involvement in the collection of that data. Is that correct or not quite? What we, we have seen of another example, and we failed in that example, is for Cushing's disease. Um, there are, uh, Cushing's disease is when a person produces too much cortisol. It's a life-threatening condition and the treatment is necessary. There are a number of, of medicines available for the endocrinologists, 
And well, they start off with, with the oldest medicine, and when it doesn't work, they, uh, they use another medicine. But there is also a third medicine, and most expensive, of course, it is a recent uh, product. But our HCA agent said, well, there are two other uh, products, and the maximum price of the new medicine, because it's the same condition, will be the same as the existing product. So eventually, if the patient needs that medicine, and we're talking about in the Netherlands, about 80 patients with Cushing's a year, and the existing medicines uh, fill 15 or 20 patients. So 15 to 20 patients need the medicine. It's not a lot. But the problem is we had an example of, uh, of a guy of our member population who got uh, on a clinical trial and, uh, well, didn't need an operation and reacted very good on the medicine and even has his own fitness center, even two fitness centers, uh, because of that medicine. And we we use that example to our HCA agent to say, well, this medicine helps in some cases, so it should be reimbursed because a person is able to perform in society and also it's better than having a, an, an employment ben benefits. But um, we, we wrote to the HCA agent, the endocrinologist did it with her association of endocrinologists and, well, we failed. And I thought we had a good example, but, uh, well, quality of life, that's also very important, wasn't in the first uh, admission of EMA and it wasn't in the HCA. So it, we didn't have the opportunity to get it reimbursed for our patients, a very small group of patients. Now, that is a shame, but again, it highlights some of the shortcomings of the way that a treatment is assessed. In fact, it's not just about quality of life being overlooked as a factor. It's also about the value to an overall health system or <laughs> even economy. Lots of the time, a treatment's being reimbursed that is not actually allowing someone to participate as fully as they possibly could in society and in the economy, which everyone loses from. So it's at this point that I'd actually like to zoom out and ask you a question Francois. And first of all, could you actually just recap for us what exactly are health technology assessments or HTAs for short? What are they meant to do and what is their role in medical systems? So first, which technologies are we discussing? Health technologies. It's really everything that is used in healthcare, medicines, but not only. At the hospital, everything is a health technology. Even the painting on the walls at the hospital has to satisfy certain standards, safety standards to avoid the dissemination of bacteria, for example. So health technologies, it's a very large set of technologies used to treat people. We focus usually on medicines and medical devices, but even within medicines, you have different types of medicines, you have vaccines, you have prophylactic treatments, you have treatments for acute disease, etc. So it's a very large set of technologies. And the key question is for health technology assessment, it is less to know whether the technology is working than to respond to the question, but is society willing to cover uh, the expense and to pay and not the patient to, to pay. It's really uh, an assessment whether it should be covered by our healthcare systems. And it's even if for medicines, the EMA evaluates the benefits and the risks and whether the benefits outweigh the risks, there are many more questions to be answered for society to decide to cover the medicine or the technology 
at the proposed price. And that is usually a procedure which is more or less complex, which can differ in different countries. Some countries focus more on medical aspects, other on economic and medical aspects, and others are even a broader perspective with small social aspects and even societal aspects. And what do we mean by societal aspects? Just give you one example. For example, if a company, if investors have invested in the first medicine for a disease, for a rare disease, maybe society would like to reward this special effort from investors, from a company, to have been the one to pioneer the development of the first medicine for that disease, to encourage others to follow and to continue developing other medicines for, for that disease. So this is not just the interest of the payer, it could be seen as the interest of society and how do we measure that interest and how do we consider it to decide whether or not societies are willing to cover the, the, the product, the technology. I see. You mentioned that European systems differ in terms of how they carry out health technology assessments and the broad range of factors they consider. Are there any countries in Europe which excel or are slightly better than others when it comes to carrying out very comprehensive, broad assessments of the value of a treatment compared to others? I think well, HTA is a relatively recent discipline and we understand they are still developing their own methods and procedures. Many HT agencies have just started to involve patients in their procedures, for example. And there are many different methods to involve patients. You can send them a written document and request their uh, comments in writing. You can uh, organize a meeting and invite one or two patients to discuss with the experts. You can uh, have the focus groups. Uh, you can have telephone interviews and many other methods exist. And we are working on this to understand for what kind of questions should we uh, involve patients via telephone interviews or invite them to a meeting and with whom and how to best prepare them for the, for the meetings? These are questions that, which are still part of some research and there are many projects to uh, really learn uh, from all these experiments. We're still developing other methods to really in, improve the quality of the HTA report. So I wouldn't say one member state or one country has a better approach than, than others. Uh, they are learning from each other. They've been learning from each other over the, the last decades. And now we have a European cooperation on HTA to continue these efforts of standardizing and harmonizing how HTA is conducted conducted quality of life for example to respond in a way to Johan's comments we need to distinguish and to define precisely what we mean by quality of life and how do we measure quality of life and to distinguish quality of life for example from the ease of use of a medicine of course if a medicine is extraordinarily complex to use if you need to go to a remote hospital to have it administered, like let's say injected into your brain, then it will affect your quality of life. But in the example that Johan gave, a long-lasting injection compared to a relatively short-acting 
injection. This is more the domain of benefit in patient care in the conveniency of uh, of a treatment, unless you can prove it has the long-lasting one, has an additional benefit over the short-acting injection. Uh, For HTA bodies, they will not accept to pay more uh, for the long-lasting one. You, You need strong data to convince them that there is an additional benefit. They are not, in other words, they are not paying just for stabilizing blood levels. You're never sure 100% that it is the right thing to do. Uh, We know there are other hormones, on the contrary. It's their variation over the day or over the weeks which uh, provokes uh, the desired effect in the body. And sometimes when you completely stabilize the hormone, this is not the desired effect. It really depends on the mechanism of action, et cetera, et cetera. That's why it's difficult for HTA bodies to just decide reimbursing a long-lasting injection based on blood levels only. You need to demonstrate that this stabilization of the blood levels uh, translate into a benefit in the daily life of uh, of the patients. And you don't necessarily need a lot of measurement. If, for example, uh, you prove that people are less tired or have an improved uh, sexual life with the more stabilized hormone, one or two outcomes, one or two criteria might be enough for the HTA to decide, okay, there is clearly a benefit and then we will accept to cover it at a higher price. but And the best way to have this data, really, and Johan was mentioning it, that some often patients come at, at the end of the process of the discussion, the best thing is to anticipate, and here Aurodis is promoting community advisory boards of patients who meet early with the developer, with the company, really to discuss this. What can we show during the clinical development which is of interest to the patients. What can we think of that we need to demonstrate? And if we agree on what we need to demonstrate, then at the end, the evaluation both by EMA and HTA bodies will be um, accelerated and facilitated. So great. That makes lots of sense, Francois. And of course, it is very important that patients are involved as early on as possible in a drug's development and the assessment of its value. How can patient organisations and patient advocates themselves engage with health technology assessments? What can they do? It's extremely important to really explain the real impact of a medicine, of a new medicine in the life of patients. And for these, the best is, and there are different techniques for that, but we really uh, encourage patients and their representatives to meet early with the developers. One example in cystic fibrosis, now we have very potent treatments. Not only they can increase life expectancy and, and very much, but also, and this had not been measured in the clinical trials, now that the disease can be treated in most patients, in most women, uh, women with cystic fibrosis can have can become pregnant and hundreds of them gave birth to live babies. And this is a societal benefit of very important value. It's even more important for, for the people. But this data had not been measured in the clinical trials. It wasn't anticipated that the medicine would be that effective. And not only 
then we don't know how to best treat the pregnant woman with a cystic fibrosis. Should we reduce the dose or interrupt treatment? But this wasn't considered by HTA bodies when they listed the benefits uh, for, for the patients. Would have women been involved in early discussions with the developer? Maybe one of them would have asked, maybe there will be an, an effect on fertility. Can we measure it in the clinical trials? And then we would have had the data at the end of the clinical trials as an additional element to convince HTA bodies to cover the medicine in, in all countries. So this is really something to do, to inform, to train patient advocates, uh, to list and to brainstorm on all the possible information data that they think will demonstrate the utility of the of the medicine. And if there isn't a tool to measure something, there are uh, some very active organizations who work with academics to create the tool to me measure the criteria of interest to them. So that's really something which will, at the end, really help the HTA process. The HTA really wants to pay for things that help the patients. That's why patients need to be very clear early what they want, what impact they, they want to, to, to have with the new treatment. Absolutely. And you provided a really poignant example to make that point, Francois. Thank you. To wrap things up, Johan, I'd like to ask you one question or two questions in a way. What would be your message as the president of your organization representing people living with pituitary conditions in the Netherlands? What would be your main messages to, firstly, patient advocates about directly engaging with the assessment of treatments and whether or not they should be reimbursed? And also, what would be your message to policymakers about improving health technology assessments? What would you want to make sure they fully understand? Well, for patient advocates, it's important to learn about what the HCA process is and what it means for your patient population and how you can learn about it. Um, and there are initiatives from Eurodas, Uparty, uh, to learn about HCA processes and how everything works out. There are also national schemes of Uparty. And it's really beneficial, I think, that, that patients learn, of patient representatives learn what HCA is. And the other thing is, looking at the Netherlands, get familiar with the website of your uh, national HDA agent. We don't always receive invitations to give our opinion. There is a website and they're mentioning which medicines are under evaluation. So you have to proactive uh, learn about it and also talk with your healthcare providers. And maybe you can, can do some things together, writing letters or whatever. But you have to be proactive. Don't wait until you're invited to give your opinion. You have to be there early on the process. And what would be your main message, I guess, to policymakers about how they should try to improve health technology assessments? Should they themselves also appreciate the need for reaching out to patients more and seeking their views? Well, I, I see that, uh, for instance, EMA has an, a file on uh, which they have the patient organizations and patient representatives uh, that could fulfill certain tasks, giving information, thinking about uh, some parts in the process, and they really have an active patient's relations liaison officer to engage with patients. And that's something I don't see with the HTA agent. And maybe that's still because it's too new. Working with patients is a process. AMA is already here for, for a lot of years. So maybe they should start 
making uh, available information for patient organizations, uh, making a list of suitable patient organizations, patient representatives. It's difficult, of course, because there are always a lot of changes within patient organizations, and it sometimes comes through on one or two patients within a patient organization, but still it's important to reach out to patient organizations. It's, it's, it's both ways, HCA to the patient, but also the patients to the HCA body. Definitely, but it, the value of doing so is is too great for patients of all sorts of rare diseases right across Europe. Johan, Francois, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this topic. Thank you, Julien. Thank you, Joanne. Yeah, thank you.